0: Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Lones. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. On this episode, we're chatting about Denver and looking ahead to the flavor Pack Northwest Nationals coming this weekend in Seattle. And it's Trip Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. It was certainly a weekend none of us will ever forget at the Mile High Nationals and Seattle's looking good. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car, going through the finish line stripe. Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number sixteen is going to take out number one. He left on a fight a day and a half. Both Manson Heinz bikes are out. And it is crazy town and Pro Stock motorcycle. Hey everybody, Brian Loans back with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Here, this is the week uh, just following the Northwest, rather just following the Mile High Nationals, leading in to the Flavor Pack Northwest Nationals coming up this weekend at Pacific Raceways. Uh, if you've not gotten your tickets, of course, get those at nhra.com today and come see us. As we are now officially in the thick of the Western Swing, I blasted back uh, kind of overnight from uh, Denver, Colorado, back to the East Coast, and then that'll we'll be doing the same thing for the next couple of weeks as so many people are uh, the pro stock teams are not uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and we'll talk about some other stuff here as we look a little bit back from Denver and certainly look forward to this weekend's Northwest Nationals going to be kind of a monologue style show today as everybody is uh, either on the road or just straight out flat out uh, traveling from one place to the next um, or just doing their pre-race preparations. so I can respect that I will uh, rally some guests next week and get that uh get that kind of back on track. But uh, as you can imagine, and it's a great time of the year, but it's also the biggest kind of hair on fire time of the year for whether we're talking about teams, uh, whether we're talking about media people, whether we're talking about truck drivers. I mean, everybody is just um, quite literally hammered down this time of the year. Yeah, it was the final running um, as we believe it to be the final running of the mile high nationals at Bandamere speedway. And it delivered, Uh, Really on every level. Uh, I think if you're a fan, uh, if you're a racer, if you're anybody involved in drag racing and you look at what transpired at Bandamere Speedway over the last weekend, you really can't find any flaws. Uh, The place was a pre-event sellout, effectively. I mean, they were selling tickets Friday. Then Friday night, they announced that they would not sell any more tickets. And they basically said, if you do not have a ticket, don't come, because we will not let you in. And it was a three-day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday sold-out event in every respect. I think if you look at, you know, the car counts jumped up this year, people that um, in terms of uh, sportsman racing and, and even I think there was some, you know, some some names there even on the pro side if we go up and down the list that wanted to take their crack at the mountain for the last time and in some cases the first time. And, uh, you know, there was the, the same thing translated over to the spectators. People were not going to allow this um, – you know, last major national event at Bandamere Speedway to be something they would miss. And so we saw the best of the fan base. We saw the best of the racers. And, you know, the future is certainly the future. So you can never say the future is secured. Um, The Bandamere family has publicly stated that they are seeking uh, very large tracts of land um, that would be near the Denver International Airport, so outside of the city kind of on the opposite side of the city from where Morrison, Colorado is, where the track's located now. And they would like to build a a multi-use, very sprawling, large facility out there. And, you know, people have asked me repeatedly over the course of the week, do I believe it? Do you believe the Bandemere family? Do you think they're going to do it? And here's what I think. I think that the Bandemere family is absolutely not a group of people who have ever uh, nor are they now, people that would publicly say to media outlets like the Denver Post and all the other ones that were at a very well-attended press event the week before the race, I don't think they would stand up there, especially John Bannemir Jr., a man of uh, certainly integrity, a man of great faith, um, and look them in the eye and say that they were going to attempt to do something that they had no intention of doing. Now, the, the second part of that is, of course, They can mean it, which I firmly in my heart believe that they mean it. And then the second part of it is uh, doing it. And, you know, to me, uh, as somebody who has all the respect for the family and someone who has all the respect for what they've accomplished and done so far, the doing it part is going to be the hard part. And, you know, I I am I am 100 percent comfort comforted, I guess, in my own mind that they are going to effort this and efforting it doesn't mean doing it. Effort effing it. Efforting it doesn't mean it's completed and it's the you know feel-good story of the summer, but I believe they're going to try, and I believe they're going to do their darndest to get something put together and built out there in the greater Denver area. And if they do... They will be even larger uh, heroic figures in my eyes. And if they, if they don't, after putting in the blood sweat and tears that they already have, uh, they are blameless uh, in, in my mind as well. So that's kind of where my head's at there. I, I, I firmly believe they're going to try, and I certainly have, um, I certainly have great hopes as so many of us do that they can that they can put something together out there. and we can continue a, a strong NHRA legacy in the Denver area. You know, the fan base is there. Uh, You saw, if you watched on TV, if you were there, you're one of the lucky ones. Uh, If you watched on TV, you saw a great show, and you saw this, this, if nothing else, you saw the greatest testament to the need for an NHRA national event in the Denver area. When you sell that place out, bang it out three days in a row, every camping spot, every seat, every inch of parking, this is the type of thing that verifies the fact that not only do we have an incredible fan base in Denver, it is a fan base that will keep coming, and they deserve the best of the best, which is what they've gotten from the Bandemere family, and hopefully will get in the future with a new facility. So, you know, saying all of those things, it was an emotional weekend. Uh, you know, John Bandemere Jr. spoke to the crowd a couple of times, and, um, you know, his voice was was cracking with emotion, as one would expect it would be, the legacy that they've built there and all. And that's all well and good. But when it comes down to the comes down to the brass tacks, was it a good race? And the answer is it was a damn good race. It really was Uh, for an event that uh, that may be the last national event there. And I say may because who knows, uh, you know, the stranger things have happened. But by all probability is, um, you know, you want it to go out with some some signature moments, some hallmark things happening. And it did. Uh, it did. Hector Rana Jr. really with the first one, running 7:04, uh, lowering the track record by a half a tenth of a second that was set last year uh, by Matt Smith, who at the time made the first ever sub 7:10 run at the facility. So at that time, it's like, man, wow, this is crazy. Like no one's ever gone quicker than 7:10. He goes 7:09, and then Hector just un- unleashes that 7:04, which was unreal. But the biggest real number of the, the the race outside of the winners goes to Brittany Force, David Grubnick, and their entire Monster Energy uh, flavor pack top fuel team because of the fact that uh, they ran 337 miles an hour at Bandimere. They They raised the speed record by seven miles an hour in one fell swoop. I, I never in my dream of dreams thought we'd ever see a fuel car go 335 there, let alone 337 on what is, I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect run in drag racing, but my goodness, uh, when it comes to the speed side of things, I don't know how much more perfect anybody could ever be than that. And as it stands right now, those are permanent fixed records that will never be changed. So to have that happen on Saturday night at the last race uh, was was pretty spectacular. Competition itself uh, was was great. Um, uh, you know, you look at the winners of all four categories. You look at the finals of all four categories. Uh, I think we we saw the best of the best. We saw Gage Herrera um, triumph again after a couple of races of, of being behind the eight ball in terms of either some red lights or some issues. He goes right back to where he feels like he should be, certainly where his team feels like he should be. As I said on the show, he never lost the points lead. But he may have lost a little bit of the intimidation lead, which I believe he has recovered nicely because it was a command performance on Sunday. They did not qualify number one, but they did basically go low ET every round. And he rode the bike as though he should have ridden the bike. He did it in the thin air. He did it in a track he'd never been at. And so he is the guy that if we look at our four professional categories, who can sweep the swing? Well, we know that he can. We know that. Uh, Clay Milliken can, and we know the Matt Hagen can because they won the first race. Troy Coughlin can't because we're not taking pro-stock cars to Seattle or Sonoma this year. So, um, if we look at the three racers that have the ability to sweep the western swing, that that's the guy we're going to look at the hardest. We're going to pay attention to all three of them, but to me, doing it in funny car is just so difficult. Matt's car is great. He's the points leader. Best funny car in the country, but also it's a funny car. And you now have to win eight rounds straight. You put together the first four, but now you got to do it eight more times straight in the most unpredictable, angry, ill-tempered cars that we have. And in Top Fuel, we'll get to this in a couple of minutes, Clay Milliken puts together, for the second time this year, an incredible race day. And not just Clay, of course, the entire team. Jim Oberhofer and their entire group put together an incredible race day. Under the tough conditions to be in, under the tough conditions to work in, they were Awesome. All the way down the line, absolutely awesome and the the idea that uh that those guys can can do it twice more in a row nothing's impossible in drag racing, but they've won eight rounds this season and they've only been out of the first round twice, so it makes them a wild card, but it certainly they can do it they've they've uh They've won the first race, but I want to kind of move that uh, typewriter carriage back a little bit to just a pro stock motorcycle for a brief, brief second. You know, Hector Ronda Jr. is to me the biggest threat to Gage Herrera, and while we, well, we are going to continue to see you know points be re- very far spread until we get to the the U.S. Nationals and the reset for the countdown. Um, I think we should really keep a very close eye on Hector Ronda Jr. Because you know, yes, he's going to be a couple of hundred points back. Uh, you know, even if Gage doesn't show up for the last couple of races, he should still go in as the number one seed in the countdown just for the gulf of the points that he has accumulated. So, I think the I think the thing we need to start talking about is is that countdown experience, which Hector Ronda Junior has a lot of, and Gage Herrera has none of. And so. I'm not sure Gage is the guy who sits around and thinks oh, I got a couple hundred, uh, you know, a couple hundred points here between me and the field. But as we all know, that couple hundred points becomes virtually nothing. And the mission too fast, too tasty points, of course, will help um, when we get to the reset. The number of those you can rack up and kind of pad any sort of lead you have is good, but they're small points. Championships are typically won by small points in this format that we have, so. You know, Gage Herrera, yes, we're going to continue to revel in everything he is doing, has done, and and will likely continue to do in the regular season. But let's not forget, once that countdown reset happens, stuff like the red lights we saw earlier in the season become absolutely, can be, catastrophic. When you allow that door to swing open, it's okay. It's one thing to do it when you allow it to swing open when you're 180 points up on everybody. But when that door swings open to the countdown and you're, 40 points up, or you're 30 points up, or you're less than that. Now we're talking about something. So, Hector Rana Jr., you know, the experience he's carrying in, and the fact that that motorcycle, as we saw, 704 in the mountain, like, let's never forget what's lurking in that bike, what's lurking in the tune up that Hector Rana Sr. can put in that Buell and make it run. We saw them as fast as anybody last year, kind of coming out of nowhere, and we have certainly seen them look very good this year, winning in Norwalk and having these multitude of late round finishes. So that's the one thing I think I want to keep an eye, an eye peeled on. Yeah, we're going to certainly talk about front runners and leaders, but I want to know who is the person that may be, the person that may be better equipped mentally or at least in experience with a countdown. And that says that takes nothing away from Gage. I'm not assuming I'm not uh, foreboding that Gage is going to have some sort of a problem in the countdown. But I'm also saying that it ain't over yet by a long shot. And the rest of the racers that are contending would tell you the same thing. In pro stock car, Troy Coughlin Jr. This was, uh, again, not a surprise. The guy won in Gainesville. The guy's been a too fast, too tasty winner. And he is someone that we have seen do great things. It just it seems to come in flashes, and it's flashes of performance mechanically more than it is flashes of human performance. He is he is as rock solid as it comes. He's as rock solid as his dad. He's as rock solid as his uncle. He's as rock solid as as his uncle Mike. I mean that that's winning an alcohol uh, top alcohol dragster with the McPhillips family. So it's really it does come down to the tune up, it does come down to those to those really strong heads up matches in pro stock that that definitely show themselves rounds two, three, and four. Historically and even right up to today, you know, good qualifying in Pro Stock is maybe even more more advantageous than good qualifying in a fuel category because yes, you know, you may be the number three qualifier and the other car may only be three hundredths behind you. On the sheet, but unless there's some wacko spin of weather, that 300s is almost a set number. Whereas in a fuel car, you can go out there and miss it for three straight qualifying sessions and then come up and run low ET of the first round. In Pro Stock, that's not something we see. So when we see Troy qualifying well, setting himself up good with the first round matchup to kind of get his day started the right way, when he makes a semifinal against Eric Anders. We're not sitting there going, well, he's fallen his way uphill to this point. This is where the, is where the music stops. We're saying, you better lean forward in your chair because this is probably going to be really tight. And as it turns out, it was incredibly tight, and it went his way in that race against Erica. Erica was the number one qualifier. Car ran well on Sunday, but again, it got much warmer than we had those really nice evening conditions Friday, Saturday. And, and it was Coughlin's guys that simply did a better job maximizing that car early. In the run. And that was, if you go back and look at the incrementals, that's really where the car shined. And, and that's where, you know, to me, the foundation of his victory was built, along with his just absolutely rock steady driving over the course of the day. So the pro stock cars are off in Seattle, they're off in Sonoma. We're going to pick them back up again when we go to Topeka, Kansas, which I believe comes before Brainerd, Minnesota. It does, as I look at my schedule real quick. So they'll be back uh, when we get back to the heartland of the country. Nitro Funny Car, um, you know, I, I, you look at how this one, this, this played out in Nitro Funny Car as a Denver race should play out to some degree, um, it, taking every other category and in, and in, into consideration, you know, Funny Car and Top Fuel consistently year after year deliver us upsets in the early rounds. You just don't know who it's going to be, you know, in in Nitro Funny Car, Alexis DeJoria. Who is now third in the points? By the way, did not have you know the All Star driving day that we can sit here and brag about. She just didn't. Delworsh and Nikki Bonafide and that crew did everything correctly. She did some great driving. The starting line was not her biggest asset on Sunday. Pedaling the car, getting it to the finish line, which she did it once, I believe, twice. That was where she shone. You know, that car, the car did not set low ET of any round. She did not set low average reaction time of any round. But when the chips are on the table, you get the car to the finish line. It's not a beauty contest. And, you know, in so many aspects of either drag racing or life, the, the bottom line is the best thing somebody can say about you is that you did your job when you needed to do your job. And so the idea that you know yeah there's no flashy numbers to come out of the bandero premium tequila car there isn't except for one flashy number, and that's the points she accrued over the course of the day to move who, her from fourth to third so if i'm a if i'm a team owner if i'm a racer if i'm a whatever and and the end object here is to win a championship or to place myself in championship contention i'm not uh, i'm not going to harp on style points On a day like we had on Sunday in Denver, in Nitro Funny Car, style points can go right out the window. And what counts is as any way you can do it. On three legs or four, uh, sideways with eight cylinders or six, just get my car to the finish line first. And so we have to put a lot of credit on the crew side of it, the crew chief side of it, the decisions that were made there. But we can't take credit away from the driver because when Alexis was called upon to do the job, she pedaled. She handled the car well. It was loose out there. It was slippery. It was skating around the top end. Everybody was. And we talking about her in the final against Matt Hagan. And so it is very easy to get critical. And, and to a degree, we need to be critical because that's a, you have to be objective when you look at this stuff. But it's very easy to look at the starting line and go, oh my God best reaction time of the day was 107. How did this happen? How it happened was there was skill in that seat. The skill did not 100% manifest itself in great reaction times, but it did manifest itself in the ability to fight that car to the finish line. I am not supposing that uh, being 107 at your best on Sunday is a a way to win a championship because it isn't. We'll talk about why in a second. But what I am supposing is that car is third in the points for the re for a reason. And that car is third in the points because it gets to the finish line. She gets it to the finish line, and so, you know, we can we can scratch our heads and look at that and look at the fact that that she was in the final round, but there's really no question about why. For the same reason, Matt Hagen was in the final round. Now he did it a different way. He did it a much different way. Bottom line performance for car and driver, uh, a stark difference if we look at the two finalists. Matt Hagen dials up a 008 reaction time and has a quicker 60-foot time than his opponent. So when you say, oh, man, wow, he just beat a stage thing super deep. Might have staged it a little deeper than usual, but had a quicker 60-foot time than his opponent and had one of the quicker 60-foot times of the day for a Nitro Funny Car on that run. Was talking to another competitor in the nitro funny car category on my way home from Denver, and he said, "You know, I, I and this is an experienced guy who has good perspective." And he said, "It is. Um, he said, its he said it's not out of the question to, to talk about Matt Hagan as one of the greatest funny car drivers of all time.'" And it seems like a big thing to say about this guy, but in the modern context and the historical context, there are few people who have been better at this. Very few people. If we look at win totals only, maybe you can start ranking people that way. People like to rank people in in a bunch of different ways. Um, To me, I look at the situational driving of Matt Hagan. When things call for him to do something great, he doesn't. When the moment calls for him to be better than average, to be better than his normal average, to be better than even the class average by a lot, he can do it, and he can do it with some regularity. And, you know, it's no no mistake that he's found himself in the final at Norwalk, and he got the absolute best, best effort that Blake Alexander and Jim Head could give, and it beat him. No no mistake they found themselves in the final at, at the Mile High Nationals, their sponsor's race. It's the Dodge Power Brokers, Mile High Nationals. It was painted right down the side of his car. No mistake that he's won that race two out of three years. And listen, it would be no mistake if those guys sweep the swing. I mean, I, you know, I'm just saying, that, man, it's long odds. Historically speaking, it is long odds. I think Force did it first in 94, something like that. So we're talking about 30 years ago. And it is just going to be one of those things. Uh, how, how focused can they remain, which is highly focused, They've showed us that now for the three World championships Matt has accrued Dickie's been a part of a handful of them and you know I think I think the one the one really deciding factor that's going to be big here coming into Seattle is once again it's a smaller field this typically happens when we go out to the west coast so there is going to be some buy run potential and so you know can you qualify to the right place to get that buy depending on what the final car count is it'll either be a first round or second round buy and do you, I mean, you want to buy whenever you can get it, but ideally you want it in that second round. So we'll see how that shakes out. One last point about Matt Hagen's victory in Denver. When Matt Hagen won in 2021, in the first round, he raced Chris King. In the second round, he had a buy. In the third round, he raced Ron Caps, And in the final round, he beat Alexis DeJoria. Matt Hagan had the same exact order of opponents and runs in 2023 as he did in 2021. I don't. I'm not an odds maker. I'm not a big math guy outside of drag racing, but the odds of that happening two years hence is insane. That has to be insanely small to go king by caps to Joria, The same order you did it in 21. That is that to me is just it's bizarre in the best kind of way. And I didn't even know that until after the race. I would have made it a, a pretty grand point to mention that uh, on our broadcast if I had known at the time, but I didn't. I knew it after the race because of their post-race uh, release communication from the, uh, the TSR team mentioned that. And I thought to myself, man, first off, how did I miss that? Second off, I never would have looked for that in a million years. And third off, damn, I wish I was smart enough to look for that. Those are the three things I thought in succession. And, look, when we talk about the other competitors in Nitro Funny Car, you know, Robert Hite and John Force Racing, huge involvement with Flavor Pack, so they're going to come out as, uh, you know, really as fired up as ever. I think Robert was frustrated with where they ended up on the mountain, um, as anybody of his caliber would be if they didn't win. You know, if Ron Caps comes in five points behind Hagen, he's 45 points back now. Small numbers. Nitro Funny Car Racing, as we know, can, can kind of turn on a dime. Toledo Motorsports, including J.R. Todd, another semifinal finish, and this is this is something building with that with, especially with the DHL car. In my opinion, um, we talked a little bit about it on the show. We have you know limited time to to get a lot of this stuff out during our broadcast. We want to show you as much racing as we can, as opposed to getting you run over with factoids. But that is a that is a program. You know, the semifinal finishes do eventually add up to something. They really do. And for JR, you can you can almost see his spirit kind of being buoyed a little bit. You can see that. You can see a lot less frustration. You can see a lot less kind of palpable, simmering anger. And you can see a little bit of that fun returning for him. You know, when we move in and talked about Top Fuel, which I'll do in a second, you know, Coletta Motorsports hasn't won a race since 2021. It is It is insane to say that out loud, but that's the facts. And so... You know, for these these three cars, when you saw Coletta and Langdon go into the fi- semifinals on opposite sides of the ladder in top fuel, and you saw Jr. in the semifinals in Funny Car, it's like, man, maybe maybe the maybe the, the the stuff's starting to catch over there in a good way. Success begats success, and I think that works inside a team, even a multi-car team in different categories. I think that works with so. We'll find out in Seattle, Washington, if that continues forward, and that brings us to Top Fuel. And, and you know, Top Fuel, um, we talked about Brittany's three hundred thirty-seven mile an hour run, which was just, just a, just. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. What else do you say? There's no words to describe what that is up there at Bandimere. Three thirty-seven at Bandimere is beyond the pale of of wildness. And then she got beat in the first round. That is the nature of this sport. You know, you go out there and do something that nobody thought physically possible in the the, the realms of uh, physics in our known universe. And then the first round happens and Rob Passy goes motoring on by at the top end. And Rob Passy was, and and Rob Passy is is one of the great top end interviews we have in drag racing. And listen, he went to the second round at the Four Wides this year. He beat Doug Coletta in Phoenix a few years ago. He goes to the second round here, and we talked to him. Genuinely, a guy who was just he was he was in the moment. He appreciated the moment, and he is always very quick with a quip. That's one of the things I really like about Rob Pass Rob Passy rather because when we when he beat Coletta in Phoenix. When we talked to him, he said, geez, I figured Doug would be down here reading National Drag Show by the time I showed up. Genuinely funny line. Well, when he talked about Brittany, he said, man, you know, the the pre-race interviews and all the stuff that's going on on Sunday morning, they keep talking about 337, 337. He said, I was hoping she would just throw me a tow rope out and pull me along down the racetrack. He wouldn't say it to be cocky. He was saying it because he was joyful in the moment of having won against a defending world champion. And the fastest car in the history of the racetrack. And so, you know, that was a, that was a feel-good story. The, the matchup between Josh Hart and, and um, Leah Pruitt, that is top fuel drag racing these days. I mean, Leah dials up her best light of the season. She had her best light of the season in the first round against the guy she knew she was going to have to leave on, and he was just a tiny bit better. He was in the 20s. She was in the 30s. You know, and they both ran identical elapsed times at three nine oh five. Josh Hart wins by minuscule margin, handful of thousands, and goes on to the next round. And she's eliminated in the first round, and, and that was a tough one to take for that team. Obviously, it's the it's the Dodge race. She's won there, she's succeeded there, she loves the place, she's worked her tail off the entire week. Doing media, answering the same questions a trillion times over at local television and radio stations, doing interviews with us on the Fox broadcast with other outside media sources, and it all comes to that pinpoint head in the first round, and you do the job, and it just isn't quite enough. That's when this sport can really kind of tear your guts out. And we captured a reaction. You know, she saw the time slip in her helmet, and and you know she just physically and angrily curled up. You, know, you saw her, her wrists and her hands kind of just clenched the time slip after she looked at the numbers, and you can understand why. The want just to win, and then not only the want to win, the want to win, and then you perform in the moment, and it isn't quite enough. And frankly, 3.905 was the slowest winning elapsed time of the first round. So there was a lot of, I guess, conservatism on both of those teams. Other cars attacked the track a little more aggressively, found themselves in the 80s. But for Leah, that was a signature moment, and I don't say that in a mean way. I just say it in a in a defining way in that it was a visual of just how how physically bad that that, that team, and her specifically, wanted to deliver at that final mile-high nationals. Clay Milliken's team. The other story we got to talk about here. They win Chicago. You've probably heard me say it on the show. Maybe you didn't. They have won coming into Denver. They had won four rounds on the season, all in one day in Chicago. Now they have won eight rounds in this season. Second time they did it, winning with with great, convincing fashion. By the way, in all of Clay Milliken's career wins, this one to me ranks as one of the most commanding. When that car was good in the evening temperatures, and then good in the warmer temperatures on Saturday during qualifying session three, I thought to myself and Tony Pedregon, the same thing that these guys really got a weapon here. And then you got clay coming out there and just 50 on the tree, 53 on the tree. Like there he is feeling it. Absolutely feeling it. He is having another spectacular season of driving as far as the starting line goes. And Jim Oberhofer, you know, credited Connie Coletta for teaching him how to race on the mountain all the years he worked for him. And, and Jim just did the job of jobs. His crew executed flawlessly. Car goes down the racetrack. He's thumping people. They're feeling it. And now the big question is, okay, do, do is this the thing that triggers that team? Because we thought, I thought for sure. Me personally, I can speak only for myself, but I think other people may have thought the same thing. But me personally, when they came out of Chicago, I was like, these guys are going to go on a run. If not a win every race run, but a run where they finally get rid of all these first round losses they have been suffering and become one of these teams we can expect to see with regularity in the third round and in final rounds. And it just didn't happen. So now the, the, the double down on this question is you do this at this this race that is so specific on so many different things you do to the car. You know, this was a perfect race for them in many ways. Like, take me out of this zone where I've been stuck in the first round and put me in this place where everybody has to do something different. And that's exactly what happened. They came out of that normal zone where everybody's doing the same thing race after race with the same give or take conditions. You go up there, everybody's out of the comfort zone. Everybody's flailing around a little bit. Everybody's looking at notes from last year and and years, three, four years ago to figure this out. And then you go out there and you kill them. And you kill them all, and you do it in convincing fashion. And now you go back to that that scenario that you just left. And now is when the, this is a big defining moment for this team. They come out in they come out in Seattle, and if they qualify top half or better, and they manage to go to to the, even the second round semifinals, that's progress. And it's weird to say somebody winning a race and then going to the second round or the semifinals, of the race after is progress, but it is because otherwise it makes me wonder, are they just back to being in the first round team again? Which I sincerely hope they're not for those guys. I mean, that's a manic way to live your life. Can't win anything, then you win a race. Can't win anything, then you win a race. And, you know, they finally broke their way into the top ten. That was another wacko statistic. They had won a race, and they were outside the top ten because of all the first round losses. Well, with this second win, they have now found themselves in the top ten. And, you know, now – If this is the moment that they've broken out of the shell a little bit and they can go on a nice run for themselves, Topeka, Brainerd, and Indy, that team could easily find themselves top five. And if you put any team in the top five going into the countdown, they can win a title. And I know people have won it from the the grandstands before. They've won it from the bleachers. They've won it from the the deeps and depths of the end of the countdown scale, but that's typically not how it goes. So, you know, for Clay and Rick Weir Racing, the entire team, Parts Plus, Biohaven, all that – I want to see uh, just a representative weekend, and then I can kind of adjust my, my championship views with them and everybody else uh, in, in concert. And the, the, kind of the inverse of this, we can talk about Brittany Force and her team because, you know, that's not a team that needs much in the way of recovery. They had a bad weekend. They lost in the first round. But, you know, I think how much do we write off Denver as this anomaly? You know, can we give too much credit to teams that win there not enough credit and and then overplay an, an early round loss? Probably. Maybe we can do that at every race. But it's it's for the same reasons I'm I'm always impressed with with Matt Hagen going up there and winning, or I'm always impressed with a team that is championship caliber adjusting to the moment and the conditions. Um, I guess we can always be a little skeptical that a team that does succeed up there that has had struggles can't translate it back to, to Earth. So I think the uh, you know it's going to be just as interesting to watch Brittany Forrest recovering from a first round loss as it is to watch Clay Milliken coming back from a win. Steve Torrance went some rounds. That was a good weekend for them. They want to win these races. Of course, they haven't put one together this year. But again, it's that it is an accumulation of rounds, an accumulation of experience. Um, I, I just I just don't necessarily see uh, a huge front runner in Top Fuel at this point. You know, as good as Britney's car has been, as good as the other cars in the category that can contend have been, I, I can't necessarily put a, a finger on somebody and say, "Aha, this is what it's this is what it is, this is how it's going to go." And so, I think the last, um, you know, really the last thing to touch on in the in the top fuel category is the Coletta Motorsports putting two of those cars in the semis. Um, you know, Doug making it to the final. As much as all of us looked at Clay Milliken and thought, okay, this car is great. This team's doing great. We keep looking at Doug Coletta. When we, when he makes finals, we keep looking at him going, okay, this has got to be it. This has got to be it because how could it not be it? It's been too long. Every one of these he makes, you think, this is the time for Doug, and it just has not worked out in that way. The old saying, you can split uh, granite with dripping water. Well, those guys are those guys are kind of trying that and the water continues to drip in a positive way. Doug Coletta's car has gotten better. Doug's car is better now than it was at the beginning of the year. Is better now than it was last year. Is a car that, with a race win, I firmly believe if that thing wins a race between now and the U.S. Nationals, that they can make a a run at it. I do believe that, maybe more than any other team that is is in the back half of the top ten. I look at that particular car and think, just one. They're the team that could bust open if they get one. And they came close again, smoked the tires in the final against Clay, But it was almost like you could feel it happening there. It just didn't come to fruition. Doug did make a positive move in the points. He got himself out of that 9-10 slot, moved himself to a little bit more, you know, a uh, a slot more fitting of his abilities and resume. And they are still trying to fight their way to the front. So, I don't know. This is what makes Seattle such a compelling race. You know, I I used to always think it was the best to go from Denver straight to Sonoma because of the massive, you know, the the two ends of the performance spectrum. We all know way up in the atmosphere in Denver, way down in the atmosphere in Sonoma. But I like Denver. Or rather, I like going to Seattle here because it's kind of a half step. So we go from the insanity of Denver. We work our way down to Seattle. Then we work our way to Sonoma. So it is almost a performance potential ramp for our racers. Flavor Pack Northwest Nationals coming this weekend. Get your tickets on NHRA.com. It is going to be great. We know the memories that have happened here from John Force winning the 150th last year, Tony Schumacher winning in in what was really kind of an out of nowhere style win, which I thought was great. That card been struggling. It was the weekend they announced uh, Joe Maynard taking uh, ownership of the team, uh, and then they went out and won the race. You know it's it's a lot going on as it always is, but I just wanted to jump on this week and kind of give you an outlook and a uh, a playback and a bit of an outlook for this flavor pack Northwest nationals. I'm going to be hitting the road too sweet to go back out to Seattle, Washington, specifically Kent Washington and Pacific raceways. I hope you stop by and see us. Hope you come check us out. The Northwest Nationals, a great event. Been around. Started in the 70s. It was a bit of a break in the 80s, and then it's been back on the gas since about 1988 to present. We'll be talking about history this weekend and certainly following along to find out if Gage Herrera, Clay Milliken, or Matt Hagan can go two for two out of the three race epic known as the NHRA Western Swing. Thanks for listening this week. I apologize there was no guest, but again, it is crazy town this time of the year. We'll be gathering some guests up next week as we get ready for the Denso Sonoma Nationals out there in Sonoma, California. Get your tickets to that race as well, along with Topeka, Kansas, Brainerd, Minnesota, and of course, the U.S. Nationals all on sale right now. It is the hot and heavy part of the season. Some people call them the dog days of August. These are the working days of drag racing. August, September, and late July are absolute peak for all of us around this sport. Can't wait to see everybody in Seattle. And again, thanks for listening to the NHRA Insider. I'll be back next week.